This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. And welcome to Pet Chat. It's 11 past 12 and I'm Jane Klein. With me today, our pet vet, Dr. David Tabret, and welcome, David. What's your topic today? Hi, Jane. I just wanted to report in. I had a wonderful day uh, last Sunday at the Million Paws Walk for the RSPCA, so I'll give you some stories from there. Sounds yep. excellent. And Danny Boss is with us as well. We'll be talking to a pigeon racer later on in the program, and we'll be taking your calls from 12.30. And our pet vet, David Tabret, hello to you. Hi, Jane. And to Danny Boss. Hi, Jane. Just to prove you're here. Yes, <laughs> I am. He is here, everybody. He's sitting right beside me. He is, and he has a voice. And David, the million paws walk. Yeah, I mentioned that um, we were going up there. So um, we were. Uh, I went up there on Sunday. It was where, at where Morp- was it? Morpeth Common, and there was a large, a very large crowd. Although it was a bit, um, there were cars everywhere. Morpeth is a great place. I haven't visited there a lot. I must admit. But now you feel you should do more. I know. I know. It looks so wonderful, and um, but you could barely move down the main street. Anyway, the, on Morpeth Common they were set up. It was a wonderful morning for a walk. I must admit, though, they, they fluked the weather if they got in before this weekend. Yes. A lot of people were there. Um, a lot of a lot of dogs. Isn't it amazing, Danny? How dogs all get along fine when they're all out doing something on neutral territory. They're it all is. yeah. They don't yeah. Never. I didn't see any disputes at all. A couple of parking problems out there, More but the, the dogs. Yeah, the people, but the dogs were fine. And there was the the sausage sizzle, the barbecue was set up, and um, I think the dogs were lining up for that as well. There was a demonstration. Did you get that picture, the sausage sizzle with someone holding a sausage Sausage dog? Sausage dog, no. (laughs) That'd be uh, quaint, wouldn't it? Definitely a collector's item. There was, um, and a lot of the uh, companies that supply products, like the food companies, um, were there with uh, stalls set up and um, a couple of the manufacturing drug companies were there as well. Uh, a lot of um, pet products, and um, there was. I saw people with uh, dog training club was there. They did a demonstration with their dogs, which was fantastic. And um, I had an opportunity to stand up and have a talk about um, problems seen in old age in dogs and what we can do about that. So some of the things we highlighted were, uh, for instance, the dogs we tend to uh, see and people say, oh, they're just getting old because they're slowing down. But in actual fact, they probably have some disease most commonly arthritis, and with this cooler weather coming on, we're starting to see, yeah, the joints stiffening up of a morning, and so uh, you'll notice your pet might be a little bit slower getting up and get going, you know, a bit like us, I suppose, too. There's a lot of things that can be done to help them out treatment-wise. There's dietary supplements. We always recommend, uh, you know, regular exercise, and that can be just going for a walk, although swimming is a great exercise as well, and dogs have a lot of opportunity um, around Newcastle. There's the beaches and so on, the uh, dog beaches that you can go to. Even in winter? Well, yeah, even in winter. The dogs don't seem to mind. It's more the owners standing on the beach. (laughs) There's a couple of indoor dog swimming pools as well. So there's a number of opportunities for people to exercise their pets. And, of course, going for a regular walk is good for your dog and good for yourself. And uh, if, if they're still feeling sore and a bit stiff after all of those sort of things, then there are medications that are helpful and you need to see about that. And the other things that we see, what else? Um, Oh, heart disease is very common. I saw a lot of little dogs out there on Sunday, trotting along, exercising really well, and um, 
but once, sometimes we get a bit worried that as they slow down and they're getting a bit of a cough, and it's usually at night that indicates that they might have some heart disease. So, again, it's something you do need to see your vet about and just uh, get it monitored because sometimes they can be coping quite well and then next year it'll start to cause problems and there there is some really good medication available. Now, I wanted to just step away from that because I was approached by a couple who um, brought their dog up for me to um, say hello and this is just a fantastic story the dog's name is Chifley and I hope they're listening Um, and Chifley is uh, we normally change the names on this show okay but not for Chifley he's pretty special (laughs) Chifley let me tell you he's going to be uh, a banner dog for some amazing treatment that's going to come along for people now Chifley was diagnosed about eight months ago he was having trouble falling to one side and so on he had diagnosed with a brain tumor so he went off to sydney and had an mri done and visited an oncologist okay a veterinary oncologist and um he's the nature of his tumor was such that it was pretty difficult to treat however there's a new treatment that's available and Basically what it is, there's a company that's doing trials and Chifley was a candidate. So they've enrolled him in this treatment trial. And what it is, is they've taken the chemotherapy drugs and impregnated them or put them into bacteria. They've then injected the bacteria into Chifley's bloodstream. And this is all sounding pretty high tech because it is. And amazingly, Chifley's tumour has shrunk by 30% and he's Mm -hmm. left with very little residual problem. Now, the normal time from diagnosis to when these tumours advance to the point that they're probably not going to live anymore is about three months. That's what they were given. And it's now eight months later. Chifley literally was running around. He was right at my feet. It was fantastic. So this treatment is apparently going to be taken by the company that are doing the trial. They're going to enrol people in treatment trials. I think it's either later this year or next year. And Chifley is literally the breakthrough dog. He's the one who's going to lead the way. That's amazing stuff, isn't They're it? They're very excited about it. And, of course, um, he he gets to uh, be with his family for a lot longer than he would have otherwise. So we're very happy. And I'm, I was extremely um, impressed. And, and his owners, his parents were so proud. Um, that he was helping. That he was that helping way. and that, you know, they had him for all this time. So... Good on Chifley. We'll keep so an ear out. This is a uh, an alternative to surgery. Well, I guess it's targeted for certain types of treatments. And the big thing about it is that um, tumours inside the brain, it's very difficult to get drugs into them. And so usually it's radiation therapy or surgery because the drugs can't cross the blood-brain barrier that they can't get through. And so this is the the, the real landmark thing about this case is that it's able to get in there and treat the tumour. And it's a special kind of bacteria? Yeah, I didn't get into the technical Very side nice. of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good bacteria, put it that way. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so amazing story and good on Chifley. You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat and Danny Boss. A little bit of a departure today. We've got an interesting guest to talk to. Well, look, Jane, 
it's the start of the pigeon racing season. So there I is thought a season. There is a racing season, exactly. And there's more seasons to pigeons, which we'll find out very shortly. But what it is, is John's been um, into pigeon breeding and pigeon racing for some 48 years. And he's a member of the Newcastle Hunter Club and the Newcastle Coalfields Federation, which are both pigeon racing clubs and he's got vast experience in pigeon racing and so i thought what better way than get him onto the show we can chat to john about pigeon racing how are you john thank you for coming on hey Danny, how you going, mate? hi well. look i watched a program on tv a little while back that i found very very fascinating about pigeon racing and that the effect the pigeons had on World War Two, the pigeon uh, pigeon flies in World War Two. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right, Danny. Pigeons uh, played a big part in World War Two. They had pigeons with every unit that went into battle, and uh, certainly in, the, in in England. I don't know about so much in the Australian War Memorial, but in England they've got quite a few pictures of the pigeons that were decorated with war, with medals that saved. I think it was in the Battle of El Alamein. They say they saved. Over a hundred thousand Allied lives in, in the war, in the, getting a message out that they were trapped. And, yeah, uh, all other all other methods of communication had failed. But yeah, both the Allies and the Germans used they used both the had pigeons. pigeons, and there was yeah. a bit of um, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, quite a few of the brave little birds lost their lives. They were shot down. Yeah. messages, but how did the pigeons of, know where to go, John? Oh, uh, that's a sixty-four million dollar question. I was only saying to Danny recently that. Uh, NASA spent millions and millions of dollars, probably hundreds of millions of dollars, trying to work out that exact thing. For, because uh, if they could ever work out their, their, they've got the best radar system of all time, pigeon. They can be taken to any different place within a re- within reason and uh, home back to one particular spot. Well, in your racing history, you were saying that um, you know pigeon had pigeons had been let go, say at Hobart, and they flew back to Newcastle. That's right. They do that. Uh, uh, not every season they don't race that that particular race point, but yeah. every year we start racing approximately 80 miles and, and generally finish around about the 700 hundred mile mark, which is in kilometres. They're talking about 1200 kilometres. Yes, they do have a race in uh, South Australia every year from um, from uh, Alice Springs to South Australia, which is over 800 miles. Well, wow, that's some that's some serious dis- uh, distances, and they they come back and they come back to their loft where they where they belong. They come back That's home. That's right, yeah, they're home back to the, to the, the loft that they were bred and raced, in, raced from. Yeah, they have uh, this incredible homing instinct, which I guess that's one of the great mysteries of, of the pigeon, and that's one of the reasons I love them so much. Because yeah, personally, what what uh, brought you to pigeon racing and breeding pigeons? Oh, I, I think I've always had that instinct that I wanted to be around just one of those farm type people and I've always loved to be around around animals but certainly pigeons have intrigued me since I was four or five years of age and um, the, the what's the history of the breed John? Well pigeon was actually de- developed from the uh, the originator was at Barcelona Rockdaven it was developed in the 1800s in Belgium right by a series of flyers that blended together a uh, Pigeon doesn't a racing pigeon doesn't actually exist in nature. It's something that the humans have blended together, clever manipulation of genetics, etc., to, to produce a bird that actually comes back and does, does what they do today. And we're still hopefully improving on the genetic all the time. And what kind of speeds can they get up to? They have been known to do over three thousand metres a minute with a tailwind, which is 
you know, three kilometres in a minute when you think about it. Wow, that's absolutely, quite... Yeah, that's going and going quick. It's very fast. They might... They're... they're their, their body really is quite remarkable, isn't it? Because there's so much energy that goes into travelling these distances. They do. They expend enormous amounts of energy and, and uh, they, they, unlike most animals, it'll stop when they get tired. A pigeon will just keep flying on and on and on and they eventually start, once they've used all their body fats up, they'll start drawing on their own organs to, if, if need be, to get the energy to get back home. And, uh, and they've got that real there. strong heart. They've got an enormous heart. Yeah, the good ones have got a great heart. They're, they're just, as an old saying in the pigeon game, the good ones will fly through a brick wall to get home, and they virtually will. They're, wow. They're quite amazing little creatures, as I said before. They'll fly up to, they'll lose up to two-thirds of their body weight in some of the long, hard races. That's that's quite a lot. They're recovering just in a matter of a few days, and they're back and ready to go again within a couple of weeks to race again, you know. So they don't eat while they're flying during the no, race? No, they never, they don't eat, and... and uh, They'll land, they'll fly all day if they have to, sometimes up to 14 hours a day in the long races and hopefully get a drink when they land on dark and they'll be up and going again before daylight. So it's this desire to get back to, the, to their home. Yes, and, and that's one of the skills of being a successful pigeon uh, fancier is to, to be able to hone that, that innate desire to get home, to increase it, you know. And, John, what... What fascinates me is how, when you're racing them, how do you know who wins? Because you're not physically there at home to say, oh, they've come in. <laughs> oh, you're home. <laughs> no, it doesn't work on the honour system. Right, you? okay. Uh, <laughs> up until recently, we raced with what we call pigeon clocks, with the bird carried a, a rubber ring with a, uh, a secret number inside of it. And when that bird came home, you had to take that ring off and put it into a clock, which stamped on, stamped on a, onto a tape or a paper inside the clock, the exact minute the exact second that that bird landed wow now we've uh, with modern technology we've progressed now and we're using a uh, a microchip and a ring which is uh, when the bird lands at home it runs over a scanner similar to those that you see at a supermarket and that uh, through a series of through a series of technological things which i'm which above me but anyhow it stamps it in in the clock and it's the memory goes into the clock and uh, you go to the club and it's put through a computer and through a uh, series of uh, highly technical mathematical calculations, we determined which pigeon flew the flew the fastest. Yeah. Wow! And last of all, I guess is is pigeon racing a dying sport these days? Ah, uh, yes. Look, sadly, in, in Australia, particularly, Danny, I've noticed. Yes, and since I was a young man, it was uh, I'd say it's reduced by probably two thirds. Yeah. And, and I'd say that's basically because young kids today are. Well, I really do think that we've got away from our um, farming heritage. Yeah. So it's not so much in the kids today, and of course there's, I don't say that there's better things for them to do, and I don't think there's a better sport in the world than pigeon racing. I think it's a wonderful sport for the camaraderie and all the other things, but there's just too many other things for young kids to do, and they, it's, uh, yeah, sadly it, I think most of us can based around kids wanting to play computers, etc. And do that kind of stuff. But in Europe it's still a very big sport. It's an enormous sport in And it's Europe, still growing. Right? Mm. Uh, yeah, well, it's certainly not dying in Europe by any means. As I've said to you before, in Belgium, it's the second most important sport in Belgium behind bike racing. They actually have you can actually bet on pigeons in Belgium on the TAB to, uh, over there, and wow. they race for millions of dollars year in year out, and Mercedes cars almost every week. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a normal sport over there. You talk, and it's it's growing really rapidly now in China and in the Middle East. It's, uh, yes, yeah, that, that you're talking. 
a, a rapidly growing sport worth millions and millions of dollars. Well, John, thank you very much for that input. And uh, Jane, I find that quite interesting, p- yes. pigeon racing. We'll have to keep our eyes skywards to see yeah, any pigeons <laughs> going past. Thank you, John. Thank you, mate. Bye. John Banfield, and he's well well immersed in the sport of pigeon racing. You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat, and your calls are very welcome, 49216216. If you'd like to put a question about your pet to our pet vet, David Tabret. In the meantime, Danny, though, let's find out what's happening around the place. Pet events. What have we got? What's well, coming up? This this is one event that we haven't um, talked about previously because it doesn't get very held very often around here, and it's the New South Wales Cavi Club have their Cavi show. There's Cavies two are cavaliers. Uh, no, are they? no, guinea Wrong. pigs. Guinea pigs. Cavi. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> You've learned something new today, Jane. I always do. <laughs> Every day. We do, don't we? So the New South Wales Cavi Club have their Cavi show. They've got two of them, and they're happening on the, on Sunday the 31st of May. There's two locations. One is at Marlborough, and one is on the Central Coast. If you want to attend and have a look at these lovely, beautiful, small animals, phone up Maria Amos on 94113590. And that way you can attend the cavy shows and have a look at some cavies. How good's that? So are they quite a popular pet at the moment? They can be, especially for little kids, because they're not big, they don't grow too big, and especially if they're hand-raised from a young age, they're very affectionate and they just sit in your lap and sit in your hand and they look great. I was reading a study recently that um, looked at cav- um, I was going to say cavaliers as well, guinea pigs, cavies. <laughs> as a classroom pet for children with special needs, and they found that it actually improved behaviour, improved development, because of the responsibility and the caring aspect that was provided for the uh, classroom pets. It is amazing with that, isn't it? There's actually um, another news item that I was going to talk about had to do with with what you were just saying, and it's... um, at the Australian Veterinary Association annual conference, which is happening in Darwin, which you know yep. about, well, we've finishing got, today. Finishing today, yep. there was um, Miss ja- uh, Miss Jackson um, from a company called Harlock Jackson, who supply specialises in urban planning, is discussing ways of how, when they plan cities and suburbs, to have more. Um, parks and areas for people to take their dogs and cats and or any other animals. And guinea pigs. Guinea pigs for walks so that, that when they're living with their pets, it's not so hard to do, especially mm. if it's a more confined area, you've got a smaller yard, that you've got areas to take your pets. And that should be part of the urban planning um, development when these new suburbs get get established. So I thought that was quite interesting because they've noticed that the pet ownership is in decline here in Australia and it would Mm -hmm. be a shame for that to happen because pets bring so much enjoyment to a lot of people's lives and they help with depression and they can help with other sicknesses as well. Absolutely. And I think there's a balance between the impact of pets on an environment and, you know, we're aware of um, the Port Stephens uh, locality with the koala populations. We've got to be very aware of the impact there but at the same time 
when we put uh, people are sort of put into higher density living in cities and um, we're often away from those old historical ties to extended family pets form an important part of our lives so there's got to be a balance between providing those opportunities for pets to exercise that's right but she even mm. talked about designing houses with the view of there will be a pet living here so what sort of features would you put into a house to cater for a pet well one that comes straight to mind is cats love to watch what happens out of the window so you could have a windowsill that is larger with like a cat bed so they can sit and just watch what happens mm. in, the, in the street then mm. i've said, i mean i've seen people who've modified their own house and have um i saw one place which was for they'd actually modified it for cats and they had stairwells uh for cats up the wall and then tunnels through into different rooms so the cat didn't have to go through the doorway i suppose <laughs> but um <laughs> and therefore run the risk of losing its tail. You know? Well, perhaps. Um, but cats love to be up high, so yeah. mm, giving them lots of opportunity to climb as well. And, you know, for dogs, like specialised kennel kennel areas for dogs would be very handy. Yeah. Or, a- outdoor, or outside. Well, you, you can also get these outdoor enclosures which are like um, to keep the cat, give them the sense of outside, but they're not going to escape and um, they're not going to go out and chase wildlife and things like that. And uh, you can even get them designed so that the cat can come and go from inside to outside without having to go through a door. And, and then they're inside the enclosure, but they're still outside. So, yeah, yeah there's a whole range of products that will help people design their houses to make them pet-friendly. And you know how the economic crisis is affecting a lot of countries, and UK is one of the uh, more harder-hits countries, uh, like America? Well, the latest um, surveys have come out from the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, uh, and in the United Kingdom, they're saying that even though difficult times uh, due to the economy are happening, there has still been a 7% increase compared to 2008 in pet um, pet food being sold. So that also shows that while um, things might be a bit tighter, we're still looking after our best friends, our pets, and making sure they're still being fed quality quality dog foods. And uh, the study had reports from Hills Pet Nutrition, which is owned by a company called um, Colgate Palmolive. Mm-hmm. You might not know that. And also uh, by the Purina Brands, which is owned by Nestle Pet Care. So, yeah, so they've, they've both experienced growth in their fields with pet. That's quite good too. And I just want to mention a special hello and a happy birthday to Wilbur. Wilbur's a border collie and he's a special <laughs> dog. I want to say happy birthday to him. And, uh, he, and uh, this is from his owners, Sam and Pia. <laughs> happy birthday. Oh, Wilbur. <laughs> yes. is there, how old's Wilbur? Do we know? He's a few years old. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, multiplied by seven. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So he deserves a happy birthday. Uh, are there um, all sorts of, I mean, names for dogs are interesting. We say Wilbur and we think that's a, a cute name and uh, probably a cute name as applied to a dog. What are some of the more wacky names perhaps that you might have come across for dogs or cats? Or, or appropriate or ones? The, or, the, or the boring ones. I had one, was the, the dog's name was Dog. Dog, yes. Mm. That's very descriptive though. It made it easy because actually this was um, many years ago as a property owner who ran cattle and I said, how many dogs have you had? And he said, oh, about eight in a row. They're all called dog. <laughs> <laughs> I've, um, I know of a Jack Russell called Beer. 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 Okay. Yeah, B-E-E-R. 
And um, I guess I'm a bit weird with my Weimaraners. They're named after, you know, golden years of Hollywood movie stars. <laughs> I think that's rather nice. So You're expecting a, them to star, aren't you? That's right. So, you know, I've got a Judy Garland and Betty Davis. Oh, and yeah. Liz yeah. Taylor in there. It's a bit weird when I'm yelling out, Liz, Judy, Betty, <laughs> <laughs> Lucy. As long as they Neighbors know their must names. be having fun when they're listening to me. <laughs> Your rehab's ready. Yes. <laughs> Quite so. Um, getting back to designing houses and, and things for, um, for pets, is there some way we can perhaps look at um, protecting the next-door neighbours from the odd bark and things that might happen from a dog? Well, I think the odd bark, no. The odd bark is okay, you reckon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to live next door to people, then and it's legal to have dogs. Incessant barking—that's, you know, no function. Dogs also rem- remember that they bark for reasons. So it may well be alarm barking that there's someone strange around the neighbourhood or an intruder, and uh, that has to be considered as well. And it serves a useful purpose in that regard. But it's the incessant barking that becomes the problem. I think the issue is that uh, when it does cause a problem is when the owner is not aware and usually the neighbours just leave it until they cannot stand it any longer. So there's often a lot of anger at that point that nothing's happened, but the owner's not aware. It's best to uh, discuss it with your neighbours from an early time and say, hey, did you know he gets really upset when you're not here? He's just barking all the time. And, um, you know, here's the number of someone who you can ring about it. That sort of thing you have on your fridge. Uh, a friendly approach. But if it's left till when everybody's fed up, then usually it's not delivered in that way. And, of course, then people get defensive and it escalates. And then phone calls to council and the council rangers will tell you about all the hassles that they have to deal with. And really it's just a matter of communicating. And, it, again, we've talked about anxiety disorders in the past. So it may well be that the dog's behaviour is related to an anxiety disorder and the dog's the one who's really suffering. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I think that it, yeah, there's a number of aspects. There's the social aspect. There's the owner not being aware in that communication, but there's also the dog's health is a, is an issue as well. Mm. And I suppose you don't expect to have too much in the way of noise from cats, do you, or guinea pigs? No, well, cat. No, that's right. Guinea pigs, um, they can squeal a little bit, but they're so small it doesn't carry very far. But cats, I think the problem people see is that um, twofold. One is cats roam. And so they're less likely to stick to a smaller territory. And uh, the other thing is that although they may not make a noise, there might be you can have a, a backyard where the owners have decided not to have pets because they want to encourage wildlife and the cat comes over the fence and in, into the yard and finds ready pickings. So that's usually the, the issue. Uh, and that's where these enclosures to have so that the cat gets some outside time, but it's still... Uh, in its own environment. And there are some really good cat enclosures out there. There's companies that do professional enclosures for cats. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, very impressed. With a lot of um, fun entertainment things that happen in these enclosures that cats can play with. Mm. So is that how the cat gets its exercise then? Instead of, as it would in the wild, perhaps hunt hunting, it it gets its exercise by playing. Yeah, and um, most times, though, I I mean, we've talked before about people using... uh, Um, elastic um, toys that they can throw and the pet can chase or the little pen lights um, Mm. and dancing on a wall with that, that's a really good way to get cats exercising. But having the outside uh, enclosure allows them, you know, the 
soak up some sunlight. I must admit, if ever I've seen a cat in an enclosure, it's not exercising. It's lying in the sun. So <laughs> there's not much exercising happening. Uh, they tend to lie in the sun, and then when you come home, they chase you and nip at your heels and things. That's the exercise. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat, and we'll be back with more. Your questions are welcome, 49216216. 2NURFM 103.7. And uh, this is Pet Chat. Now, you've got something interesting about penguins, David. You might have seen the story in the Newcastle Herald this week about the fairy penguin that was washed up on one of the beaches and was rescued and uh, being rehabilitated by the Native Animal Trust Fund, who do some wonderful work with uh, wildlife in this this region. And I was speaking to the president, Audrey Koosman, yesterday about the work that they've been doing. So this little penguins, it's actually quite common. And in my role as a veterinarian, I've often seen penguins that have been brought in. And surprisingly, you sort of think, oh, no, it's only colder climates. But as in the winter period, they do travel north um, like the whales, although I haven't had to uh, had a whale come into the clinic recently. But penguins, yes. And so they're only just these little fairy penguins the sort of injuries that we see they do get they they can get exhausted but um we have seen uh, propeller cuts you know where they've been swimming around and a boat's come over the top of them and um with a bit of care and attention a lot of them are going to recover they need to be um fairly well looked after because their diet is very particular they um require a lot a lot of um feather care as well so that they're, they're ready to go back into the um into the the ocean and get released and so uh, i guess we'll probably see you know this one in the paper this week might have been the first of a few this season because we do tend to see a couple so we'll try and um i'll see if we can get audrey or someone from the trust fund on next week because uh, denny you're off next week and so we'll um we'll have an opportunity to have a chat to do an interview about and, penguins well about penguins and the, uh, other work that the native animal trust fund do because they they cover such a broad variety of species and they're a great volunteer organization well david that'll be the day when you have a whale in your clinic one <laughs> Did you catch that one? He threw that one in. A whale in the clinic. <laughs> Pick it up at the beach, bring it in. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> yes. that's, uh, that's, there have been some, um, they're called cetaceans, um, mm. dolphins and whales and so on, strandings along the beaches, usually down on the southern beaches. And um, um, Why I, is that? Why don't they get stranded up here so much? Is it because they're warmer and they uh, move might, more easily? might have something to do with the currents, I suppose. I know that even up at Port Stephens they've had some, but... Um, luckily, the the biggest thing that's landed on Nobby's Beach was the Pasha Bolker, and <laughs> that was quite big, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit bigger than a whale. But uh, whale rescue is completely it's, that's a very specialised field. And uh, although I did a lot of reading and research about it many years ago, I, I haven't been able to put it into practice. And I must say, it would require a very um, extensive refresher course to bring me up to speed on those sort of aspects. But there's people, there's a team of people that. National Parks work in with the group called Orca who are involved in the rescue of those and they also coordinate with Native Animal Trust Fund who provide resources, mainly people, mm. um, to help with those sort of events because obviously you often see media is involved and so on and um, sometimes just keeping the crowds back is the biggest thing. The interesting thing, I remember a couple of years ago, there was some seal, uh, we had a seal turn up on, uh, I think it was on Nobby's Beach Yes, actually. I remember seeing seal there. Yeah, and... Um, some people, members of the public, get a little bit too close. Let me tell you, they're 
nasty. Um, we call them rottweilers in wetsuits uh-huh. because they not that that's a blight on rottweilers. Don't get me wrong, but they're they're big and they got teeth like rottweilers. Um, and they um, we're gonna have all these rottweiler breeders ringing in. And uh, <laughs> but be um, careful, Dave. But they can get uh, they can get quite aggressive. They are wild creatures, so mm. that's natural. They don't expect to be handled or approached by. Uh, you know, people who walk on two legs. Um, but, yeah, get in the water with them and they'll take off like a rocket. So s- just be careful in these winter periods. If you do see stranded animals, report it to the police. It's probably the quickest thing who will get onto the Native Animal Trust Fund. And mm. they'll sort it out. Yes. A question. A question. Yes. <laughs> Is there any way, if you're going for a walk and somebody's dog is outside their house and they're barking at you and nipping around, mm. how can you handle it? We often talk about what to do if your own dog is barking. <coughs> what about somebody else's dog? Um, depends on if it, are you walking a pet, do you mean? Or no, on your yourself. own. Oh, okay. Without a pet. Do not make oh, eye contact. All right. We don't know the behaviour of this dog. might be friendly and just saying, woof, woof, hello. Or it might be saying, woof, woof, I'm about to Eat take you. a piece out of you. <laughs> You don't know the behaviour of the dog. Do not make eye contact. Okay. Just walk. Do not run. I did that once. I ran away from a dog that nipped at me and he chased me and bit me on the bum. And he I was kn- a big dog. He was a, yeah, a big dog. And, and it's a bit dog. hard to outrun a dog, isn't it? Yes, yes. I had to get it. Although the tetanus shot probably hurt more than the dog bite. Mm. But um, walk. Do not run. Move to the other side of the road. Calmly. Do not make eye contact. Keep your hands by your side. Preferably up higher a little bit so they don't take after you. Usually dogs will sniff and just keep walking at a constant pace. Mm-hmm. They will sniff before they do anything else because they don't know who you are. Jane, you're saying if the dog is actually loose, not, yes. in, a, not yes. in a yard, yes. oh, well, loose either, on the fact, street. Uh, yes. <coughs> right. if mm. it's, well, maybe that's another whole topic we can go into if it's behind a fence or if you've got an animal yourself. Let's, uh, let's think about that for another time because mm. we really are out of time today. That's Pet Chat for today. Thank you, David Tabret. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Danny Boss. Thank you, Jane. And Pet Chat will be back next Friday at 12.